following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, an article um, from National Geographic, uh, last month's issue caught my eye because it was uh, uh, an article on a recent discovery of a black hole. And I'm interested in things of astronomy, and so that's why it caught my eye. And um, the, the black holes, uh, if you know or don't know, they're thought to be formed when a star collapses, and the, its mass uh, ends up condensing into a, such a small region that the gravitational pull of that mass, that small area of mass, is so strong that not even light can escape, and so hence it has received the name black hole, uh, much like many teenagers, teenage boys' appetites. But these black holes have what physicists call an event horizon, and that is the region around the black hole in which once you pass that point, its gravitational pull will suck you in no matter what. There's no force that can pull you out of that. The event horizon is that surface in which no object can escape. And what interested me about this particular article was not so much the discovery of a black hole, because many have been discovered. You can't actually see a black hole, right, because there's no light that comes from it. But you can see by its effect on the bodies around it. And what struck me about this article was not the, that the whole black hole had been discovered. It was the size of the black hole that they had discovered. The astronomers who found it estimated its mass to be about 12 billion times the mass of our own sun. Yeah, that's 12 billion with a B. And you know, that's not even the largest black hole out there. Some even larger ones have been discovered. Some that have been estimated to be over 20 billion times the mass of our own sun. And what's even more mind-boggling to me is the, the size of the event horizon on these supermassive black holes. In fact, one of these black holes, the one that's 12 billion times the mass of the sun, its size, its radius is more than 20 billion miles. To give you a feel for that kind of number, that's five times the distance from our sun to Pluto. So it's five times the size of our solar system. It's one of these black holes. So what that means is if you were, you know, in your spaceship or on a planet or something, and that object got within 20 billion miles of this black hole, you would be sucked in with no way of escape. I mean, think about the power that must be in one of these things. Such enormous power. And there are many things like it in the universe which exhibit this colossal power. But what power in the universe can transform the human soul? What power in the universe can take one who is spiritually dead and make that person alive? What power can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh? What power can replace hatred for God with love? What power can bring conviction for sin? What power can free a person from sin? What power can cause someone to be willing to give up everything to follow a man who lived 2,000 years ago? Gravity can't do that. Not even gravity from one of these ginormous black holes. Ginormous technical term. If you're an astronomer, you understand that. Right? There's only one power in the universe that can cause rebirth of a soul. There's only one power that can convert the human heart. And that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Or he said in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, our, our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. Or 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Yes, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. It can change. It can heal. It can regenerate. It can transform. It can release. It can renew. And while none of us has probably experienced the power of a black hole, otherwise you wouldn't be here, if you're in Christ, you have experienced the power of the gospel. 
And I think one of the great tragedies in the Christian life is that we do not experience its power enough because we spend so little time thinking and meditating and considering and reminding ourselves of the gospel. We spend so little time reminding ourselves of its incredible truths, truths that as we experience them, as we understand them, as we meditate on them, will cause us to experience great power. We saw a couple of weeks ago how this is one of the things that motivated the Apostle Paul to write his letter to the Romans. He said in Romans 1.15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul wanted to visit these Romans, these Roman Christians, not just to exchange greetings and not just to establish a missionary base for work in Spain and not just to enjoy the fellowship of other believers. Indeed, those were part of what he wanted to do and seeing them. But I think he was most excited to see them because he wanted to preach the gospel to them. He wanted to, together with them, relish its wondrous truths and to boast in what Christ has done. A couple of weeks ago, I, I told you um, about the class that I taught on theology of salvation while I was over in Africa and Malawi. And and what struck me was just how profoundly we were all, those of us familiar with the gospel, we'd heard it many times, we preached it many times, but how even in talking about it again, we were struck so, affected so strongly by it. As I said before, many times we were there, they turned into worship services. So we would sing to the Lord just based on what we had been learning and talking about. And so upon my return here, I was eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Burbank. And so, as a result, we looked at the book on the gospel, the book of Romans. And we were only able to explore a few of its chapters. So today I want to go back there. I want to continue this, more reflections on a missions trip, by looking at further truths about the gospel, about Christ's life, excuse me, and death, and what it has accomplished, so that you would experience its power in your life. So please turn to me, with me, to Romans 3. Remember how Paul began, Romans 1.18, as he began his treatment of the gospel, he started by telling us first what we needed to be saved from. Remember, he articulated there's a problem. What is it that we needed to be saved from, delivered from? The wrath of God, right? He mentions that in verse 18 of chapter 1. And in fact, that was his focus from Romans 1.18 all the way through Romans 3.20. In these verses, he clearly and powerfully presented a case that every human being in all of history suffers from the same condition, the same malady, the same disease. And that is ongoing rebellion, ongoing sin against the holy and righteous God who made them. From the idol-worshiping pagan, Paul addresses, to the God-hating atheist, to the self-righteous hypocrite, to the, to the one earnest to keep the law. All, he says, of sin. All are under God's wrath. All are condemned. Again, Romans 3.10. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understand. There's none who seeks for God. There's none who does good. There's not even one. And lest anyone think that he or she could escape God's judgment, his wrath, by, by doing some good deeds, performing some good works, Paul then says in Romans 3.20, puts the nail in the coffin when he says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh will be declared innocent. No flesh will be said to be not guilty for their sin. Nothing we can do. Nothing we can do can pay to remove that penalty from us. And then we came upon those wonderful words in verse 21. But now, look with me there again. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And it is here, beloved, that we approach the event horizon of the gospel. As we begin to see and experience its incredible power. 
For in these words, we, we find, we learn, we see how none of, how all of us, uh, none of whom are good, none of whom are righteous, none of whom have lived a perfect life, all of whom are sinners before God, deserving his just condemnation. In these words, though, we find that through Christ, by faith, based on his work on the cross, we can be justified. Can't happen any other way, not through the law, not through good deeds, not through anything we try to do, but through Christ. We can be declared not guilty. It's an amazing truth. Because of Jesus, we can no longer stand, or we no longer stand condemned. The sentence has been overturned. And that justification, as Paul says here, is made possible because Jesus redeemed us. He purchased us out of bondage. He paid the debt we owe. We've been forgiven. Through his blood. And if you remember Colossians 2.14, this idea of forgiveness, this debt being paid was more than just that. It was also that our debt's been erased, canceled, eradicated, done away with. Like a potent acid, Christ's blood completely removes our sin from us. As if it never happened. John the Apostle said in Revelation 1.5, To Jesus who loves us and released us, from our sins by his blood. I love that. Released. And not only does Jesus' blood, his death, release us from God's condemning judgment. Paul also mentions here how it releases us from God's condemning anger. That's what he meant when he said there in Romans 3.25 that he is the propitiation for our sins. That is that he satisfies God's anger. His wrath no longer hangs over those who are in Christ. And it never will. Jesus is our precious atonement. He is our treasured substitute. Again, he took the place. He took your place. If you have repented from your sins and put your trust in him, we know 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And you know, if, as I mentioned last time, if Paul had ended... His letter at Romans 3.26. That would have been okay. That would have been enough. Just to know these truths that by faith, through the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we could be justified before God. That we could stand no longer condemned. That would be enough for us to know, right? Forgiveness, redemption, atonement. But Paul still has more to say. There are many more wonderful truths. And after in chapter 4, he makes it clear that justification comes through faith alone. He then unveils more of these gospel truths in chapter 5 and what the marvelous work of Christ has accomplished. And so this morning, we're going to continue our exploration into the gospel. as so we look to Romans 5 and 6 and so that its power may be unleashed as you understand and meditate on these wonderful truths. So let's look at chapter 5. Paul's focus so far has been on the judicial aspect of the gospel. What Christ's death has accomplished regarding our legal standing before God. Justification, redemption, propitiation, atonement. These, these ideas tend to emphasize the, the forensic side of the gospel. But the setting of our salvation is not just in the courtroom. What God has accomplished was not solely judicial in nature. It was also personal we see this in the first 11 verses of romans chapter 5 look with me there as i begin in verse 1 where paul says therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of god and not only this but we also exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now there's a lot here. But I, I want to draw your attention to one key result about justification that Paul points out here. Notice back in verse 1. He, sa- he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been declared not guilty, we have what? We have peace with God. And this is where, beloved, Paul now moves from the legal realm to the personal one. Here's where he moves from the, the courtroom to the living room, if you will. For Paul says here that our justification has brought about peace with God. And, and by peace, he means more than simply the cessation of hostilities. The Hebrew mindset, the word peace, shalom, had this idea of wishing well-being and prosperity and harmony and health upon another. And that's the idea here. We see that by the word that's repeated at the end, the last couple of verses, verses 10 and 11, the word reconciliation. That word means to make a friend of an enemy. It's not just stop the fighting. It's actually have a relationship with. And you see this, again, this peace is, is not a cessation of hostilities. It's not a call to cease fire. It's a complete change in the relationship. It's not only a change in outward action, but also an inward disposition. And this is a phenomenal thing. <laughs> this is no small matter to consider. We now have peace with God. Paul said in verse 10 that we were his enemies. That means that it wasn't just that there was no relationship. It means that there was open hostility. Rather, what's happened here is that we, have, we were enemies of God apart from Christ. Our sin, our rebellion against God meant that we were his enemy. We were at war with him in Satan's army. And it wasn't just that God was our enemy But more so than that, we were his. His wrath and his anger that Paul's been talking about throughout much of Romans up to this point was directed squarely at us. And Paul reminds us of that in verse 9 when he says that Christ saved us from the wrath of God. So to be God's enemy meant not only that we are against him, but more sobering that God is against us. Psalm 5.5 says, God hates all who do iniquity. Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. And I want you to think about that for a moment. The power behind God's wrath. I mean, I talked earlier about the black hole, right? And the immense power that's associated with one of those things. Do you realize there are millions of those out out there? And how did they come into existence? Over billions and billions of years from a very small No, right? God spoke them into existence with a word. Such incredible power. And you think about how much God hates sin. All of that power in his wrath will be directed upon it. As his enemy. Think about that. It's that kind of power which exists in God's wrath against sin. And so, again, consider carefully what Paul is saying here. Because we are justified, because we are declared innocent by the sacrifice of his son, not only are we saved from that wrath, not only are we no longer God's enemies, not only have hostilities ceased, not only has the condemnation been removed, but we are at peace. We are reconciled. You understand what that means? John Piper said, all the power that once stood in service of God's anger against us now stands in the service of his grace toward us. God's infinite power is no longer against us, but for us. Meditate on that a moment. God's no longer against you. In Christ, he's for you. You're no longer his enemy. You are his friend reconciliation and remember too beloved we were not the ones to extend our hand in peace rather we extended his hands on a cross in violent hostility when his son came to earth our human brothers and sisters called for his crucifixion 
But in humanity's darkest hour, it turned out to be Christ's shining one. Notice verse 6. While we were still helpless, Christ at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, and notice there, we were reconciled. Not we reconciled, we were reconciled. Do you see any initiative on our part to make peace? There is none. God on His own initiative, because of His great love, because of His mercy, because of His tremendous compassion, He sacrificed His own dear Son. He poured out His wrath upon Him. He treated His Son as the enemy so you and I could be His friend. Doesn't this give us pause to rejoice? I mean, that's what we see in Paul here, right? He uses that word exalt three times. It's a word that means to rejoice exceedingly, to boast in greatly. He said in verse 2, we exalt in hope of the glory of God as seen in the cross. And verse 3, we exalt even in trials, knowing that as God brings them, he's using them to draw us nearer to Christ. Verse 11, we exalt in God himself through Christ. Treasure this gospel truth, brothers and sisters, that through Christ Jesus, you've been reconciled. You've been made at peace with him, a relationship with him. You're no longer an enemy. More so, you're no longer just a casual relationship. You are a dear friend. And we'll learn next week more than that even. It's amazing. It's that truth, brothers and sisters. It's that truth. Knowing you're reconciled, knowing you have a relationship with him, it's that truth that will carry you through and even exalt in the difficulties that come in life. Because you look forward to the day that you can experience this reconciled relationship in full. Now, Paul ends verse 11 declaring that it is through Christ that we have received this reconciliation. And I think he there anticipates a question that may be on some people's minds. And that is, well, wait a minute. How is it that one person can, can bring reconciliation for all? How is it that justification can be achieved by one individual? And how does that justification make me righteous before God? Well, the rest of chapter 5, Paul devotes to answering those questions. And in doing that, he reveals another marvelous result of justification, another treasure of the gospel. And that is found in the doctrine known as imputation. Imputation simply means to be credited or charged for the actions of another as if you had committed them yourself. And the essence of Paul's argument here in verses 12 to 21 is, is that he says, just as one man, Adam, brought alienation and condemnation to humanity by his action, by his sin, so too one man, Jesus Christ, brought reconciliation by his action, his obedience. Notice Paul, what he says in verse 12 of chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And stop there a minute. You might see a dash in your translation or a parenthesis beginning in verse 13. For Paul's going to go on a tangent here, verses 13 to 17. He's going to explain in a little more detail what he meant in verse 13 with because all sinned. And, and then begin to talk about and introduce this contrast between the one man Adam and what he did and the one man Christ and what he did. And then he comes back to his main point in verse 18 where he summarizes it all together and says, look there with me, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. See, Paul what he's saying here is that the basis of our right standing before God, the basis of our, our peace with God, the reason for our redemption, it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Christ. That indeed one man is responsible for our justification because it was one man who was responsible for our condemnation. He says here that when Adam sinned, there was in some way we were connected to that. We were united with him in that. And we know this because his sin brought death, right? And now did death stop with Adam? No. Adam died, his son died, his grandson died, his great-grandson died. 
Now, great, great, or great, 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 Enoch didn't. He was taken up into heaven. But essentially, except for he and Elijah, every human being on the face of the earth has died. What does that mean? Well, Paul says, all die because all are in sin. And I don't think he's talking in that instance about specific sins, but that we are characterized as sinners. Paul says here that Adam's sin resulted in condemnation to all men. So we are doomed from the start. Notice in Romans 5.19, he says, As through one man's disobedience, the many, that's all of us, the many were made sinners. Now that doesn't mean we're compelled to sin, but as theologian Leon Morris says, we are constituted as sinners. We are born as part of a race that is already separated, alienated, in rebellion against God and condemned. Ephesians 2.3 says, We are by nature children of wrath. Psalm 51, 5, David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. Or in Mark 7, Jesus said, it's not what is outside a person that corrupts them, that defiles them, but what's inside. And so because of Adam, that is our plight, that is our condition, that is our condemnation. Now, our first inclination might be to say, and I know this because it's mine, to wait a minute, how is that fair? How is that just that I'm held responsible for the sin Adam did? I wasn't even there. How can I be condemned for his sin? Well, before you go too far down that road, you need to also remember the same questions could be asked of your salvation. How is it fair that you can be forgiven for what someone else did? How is it just that you can be declared innocent because someone else was punished? How is it fair that you can be reconciled though you did nothing to pursue that reconciliation? Look at verse 18. He says, through Adam's transgression, we were condemned. That's right. But even so, through the one righteous act of the second Adam, we were justified. Verse 19, through one man's disobedience, we were made sinners. Even so, even so, through one man's obedience, we were made righteous. And it's here in verse 19 we see clearly articulated the doctrine of imputation. That just as Adam's sin was imputed to us, so too by faith Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. Just as Adam's disobedience made us sinners, so Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience made us righteous. Paul refers to this, Philippians 3, 9, when he says that I may be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so we see here, In these verses, the marvelous truth that not only is Jesus's death important to our salvation, but so too is his life. He gave us his righteousness, his perfect obedience. Beloved, this is a very, very important truth regarding justification. It's one that I think we we don't give a lot of attention because you see to be able to stand before a holy God, to be able to have intimate fellowship with him, to be reconciled, to be his friend, to be his child. It's not enough to have a life of disobedience erased. We also need to have a life of obedience applied. Theologian Wayne Grudem said it this way. If God merely declared us to be forgiven from our past sins, that would not solve our problems entirely. For it would only make us morally neutral before God. We would be in the state that Adam was in before he had done anything right or wrong in God's sight. He was not guilty before God, but neither had he earned a record of righteousness before God. Unquote. You see, Jesus lived a life of more than 33 years, not just so that he would attain the age of 30, which is the age of high priest when they could perform service, not just so that he could be a perfect sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice by a perfectly obedient life, but also so that by his perfect life, that would be imputed to you as if you lived it. He lived a full life in perfect obedience so that he could 
bestow that, impute that upon us in salvation. Just as Paul says in that marvelous passage, we sung about it earlier this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin, knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Such a profound, glorious declaration in so few words. 15 Greek words to be exact. But in those few words, Paul gives a stunning summary of the work of Christ in salvation. In these words, we see atonement. We see substitution. We see imputation. We see justification. It's all here. Because at the cross, God made the sinless Christ to be sin, to bear our sins, so that we might become His righteousness. And so if if you think about it, really, our path to salvation, it's full of imputation. Adam's sin was imputed to us. We were under condemnation as if we committed it. Our sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. He suffered the penalty as if he committed it. And then in justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We are treated as if we lived his perfect life. It's just profound. Beloved, these these truths are not just matters of trivia for theologians to talk about. They are not meant simply to be musings of scholars. These truths you need to understand and you need to remind yourself of often that when God looks at you, listen, if you're in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees not a sinner. He sees his son. Think about that. When God looks at you, if you've genuinely put your trust in Christ, if you've sought forgiveness of your sins, confess them to Him, put your complete faith in Him, He sees not a sinner. He sees His Son. The implications of that, we can't fathom them all. He sees there one who has lived a life of perfect obedience. Because of what Christ has done, you're in God's favor all the time. God will never condemn you. He will never forsake you. He will never let you go. That's why I think the doctrine of assurance is bound up in this. That if you are now seen as his son, how would he ever sever that relationship? He never will. All whom my father gives me, Jesus said, I lose none of them. And this is why. Because we've been given his righteousness. Not only have we been forgiven our sins, that would again leave us in that, um, that enigmatic state where there's a possibility we could commit more than are covered. But no, they're all covered. And more than that, we're clothed in his righteousness. No power of hell, no scheme of man, right, can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. And Paul ends chapter 5 with this common theme that's running throughout Romans. It's a common theme that it's all of God's grace. That this justification, this imputation of Christ's righteousness, it's all of His grace, His gift, His unmerited favor. And he says at the end of chapter 5 that even no matter how great the sin, no matter how bad of a sinner we are, no matter how many sins we've committed, God's grace is even greater than that. But then comes this question, right? Well, if that's the case, if it's all up to God, if it's all of his grace, if I can't please him by just keeping the law, then why bother keeping it? What does it matter then how I live? In fact, if if his grace is greater than our sin, if it abounds more than our sin, some devious ones would say, well, then why not just sin more? What does it matter what I do? What does it matter if I keep the law or not? Well, Paul addresses that question specifically in Romans chapter 6 and in his response he unveils yet another jewel in the crown of the gospel a wonderful precious jewel for the grace of God in Christ's death and resurrection not only justifies us from sin's guilt it delivers us from sin's power Romans 6 I would say is really Christ's emancipation proclamation Look at verse 1, chapter 6, where Paul says, 
What shall we say then? And here's where he introduces that question. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you're not under law, but under grace. Now, again, there's a lot here. <laughs> a lot here to cover, but I want to draw your attention to one key truth that is woven all through the passage. In Paul's answer to the challenge that, well, if salvation is all of God's grace, what does it matter if I sin? Paul says emphatically, the gospel of grace does not give a license to sin, but rather it has freed us from it. Again, theologian Leon Morris says this, grace liberates us from sin. It does not bring us more firmly under its bondage. Previously, we had been dead in sin. Now we are dead to sin. Paul explains in Romans 6 here that, that in salvation, we've, we've been brought into this special, mysterious union with Christ that is crucifixion and resurrection. That it says there, notice in verse 6, our old self, our old man, our, our old nature that was enslaved to sin was crucified on that cross when Christ was crucified that day. And so as a result, what happens is in crucifixion? The person dies, right? And that's his point. The same day that Christ died for your sin is the day your sinful nature, your old man died. Sin's hold on us is released. And he makes this point over and over in several different ways here in this passage. Verse 2, he said, we died to sin, past tense. Verse 4, we too walk, present tense, walk now in newness of life. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 6, again, our body of sin was done away with. That's a word that means to render powerless or inoperative. Verse 6, again, we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 7, we've been freed. Literally, the word here is justified from sin. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin. Verse 14, sin will not be master over you. And if I kept reading, verse 17, you were slaves of sin. Verse 18, having been freed, released from imprisonment. Verse 22, again, having been freed from sin. Do you get the picture? Running out of breath. <laughs> Do you understand what Christ has accomplished? What his death and resurrection has accomplished regarding sin and the believer? The power of sin, its, its rule, its domination, its oppression, its enslavement, its yoke has been broken. The cross was a hammer that, that crushed the chain links of our bondage. It, it was a sharp knife that cut the rope. His death and resurrection has brought about not only the declaration of our innocent from innocence from the sins we've committed, it has wrenched sin's chains off of us. No longer under its grip. Again, you see, our, our justification was not just a legal transaction. It was a transforming one. We're not only declared righteous, but we're converted. We're transformed. We're reborn to be righteous. Being justified means we will be sanctified. Now, Paul is not saying here that believers will never sin again or that you can be perfect in this life. 
Has anyone got there yet, by the way? 100%. 99%? 95. Five. 0.05. Right? We understand that. And Paul understood that too. In fact, chapter 7, he talks about his struggle with sin. No, he understands it's not been completely eradicated in this life. Indeed, we've been freed from sin's reign, but not from its presence. Like a deposed dictator, sin continues. It keeps trying to get back into power. But beloved, Paul makes it so abundantly clear here, this truth that sin is no longer your master. You don't have to sin. You have a choice. Justification has brought about emancipation. But yet, again, if you're like me, when, when you hear these things, when, when we hear that, okay, well, you've been emancipated, you're dead to sin, sin's no longer your master, you've been freed from it, do we not find it difficult to agree? You with me on this? I think we do find it hard to agree with. It seems to contradict our experience, doesn't it? I mean, if, if I'm freed from sin, why do I feel like and not feel like I'm free? If, if I'm dead to sin, then why do I f- still find my sinful desires so powerful? They sure seem alive to me. If, if sin is no longer my master, why do I seem to be enslaved to certain sins in my life? You're with me on this, right? Verse 11, Paul just seems to throw out this exhortation. And, well, consider yourselves dead to sin. Just, is he saying just, okay, think about it. Tell yourself that over and over. Tim, you're dead to sin. Tim, you are dead to sin. Tim, you are dead to sin. If I keep saying that over and over, is that going to just make it so? Will my struggle with sin go away? Is that what Paul's saying? Just keep telling yourself you're dead to sin and everything will get better. No, that's not what Paul's doing here. It's not what he's saying. Paul gives this exhortation, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, based on one simple reason. And it is this. And lock on to me right now. This is so important. We remind ourselves, we consider ourselves dead to sin. We consider that our emancipation from sin is true because God says it is. The question is, do you believe him? It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Do you trust his word over your feelings, over your experiences, over what others tell you, over what the world says, what psychology says? Do you trust him? God says here, Romans 6, read it again tonight. He says, because of what Christ has done, you are dead to sin. He says you've been freed from its enslavement. He says that it is no longer master over you. God is saying that. The question is, do you believe it? If you do, then you will live your life in accordance with that truth. I mean, you're going to probably sit down to lunch today, right? You're going to have a plate of food in front of you. And if you trust that that food, if you believe that that food is clean, you're going to put it in your mouth and eat it, right? The glass of water sitting next to your plate If you trust that that is pure, you're going to drink it, right? You will live in accordance with your belief. Well, if you believe that because of what Christ has done on your behalf, you're no longer a slave to sin, then you will consider yourself dead to sin and live a life in accordance with that belief. It's a powerful truth. But oftentimes we let our experience tell us, well, it's not true. But brothers and sisters, do you you meditate on what the death of Christ has accomplished? Paul has taken great pains to explain all that comes with justification in Romans. And he's done that for a purpose. He didn't stop in the middle of chapter 3 because there's so much more to say, so much more for us to understand all that Christ's death and resurrection has accomplished. And track with me here. Do you think that Christ who died for your sin would leave you with no way to overcome it in your life? Do you think that if God is for us, if we are reconciled, if he so greatly loves us, if he so much hates sin, do you think that he has no desire to sever it from it, from it, from us? You think he's done all that he did, sacrificed his own son, all that he feels about us, all that he feels about sin. Do you think he would then not 
want us to be delivered from it, even in this life, and release its grip upon us? If you're a Christian, if you've truly confessed your sins, submitted your life to Christ, if you truly have trusted in Him, in His person, in in His death, His resurrection to save, you are freed from sin's reign. You now have a choice. When that temptation confronts you, you don't have to give in. You don't have to sin. Again, do you believe that? I can still vividly remember when this truth profoundly struck me. One day I was in the midst of battling lusts, a battle I was not winning. I was discouraged, defeated. I didn't feel dead to sin. And then one day, this woman was walking by, and the temptation came to take a second look, and the thought hit me right then and there. Tim, You don't have to do this. Christ has freed you from this. You don't have to. And you know, that moment, this huge weight was lifted from my soul. When I I heard that, I'd read Romans 6. In fact, I memorized it before that time. But then the truth struck me. It's true. It's true. I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to eat more. I don't have to look on what's on that screen. I don't have to pursue this attraction to someone who's not my wife. I don't have to be in anger. I don't have to hold on to bitterness. I don't have to. I have a choice. You have a choice if you're in Christ. Do you believe it? You know, that day, my heart was so filled when I realized, you know, it's true. Sin is not my master. Yes, the desires are still there. And yes, sin's trying to get back on the throne. But you know what? God's loaded us up with a handful of tacks that we can put on that throne and keep him off. And I don't mean to, to uh, diminish the power of this truth at all, but it's true. It's totally true. You're no longer a slave to sin. And I realized that day, I am not its slave. I'm a grateful slave of Christ. So that's why Paul says, consider, present tense, do this all the time. Remind yourself of this all the time. Reckon, dwell upon, think about, meditate on. You are, in Christ, dead to sin, but alive to God. And it's something that I have to keep reminding myself of. The battle rages on this side of heaven. But you know, that day I came to realize the power of the gospel. Real power today. Reminding myself I'm dead to sin and to believe in it because of God's grace. In Christ, we have been freed from sin's power. Amen. Such wonderful gospel truths. Emancipation. Imputation, justification, forgiveness, redemption, atonement. Such wonderful truths. And uh, brothers and sisters, we've only scratched the surface. But even in that scratch, are you not in awe and wonder? As we close this morning, I want to draw your attention to a phrase that Paul repeats several times throughout Romans. One we've actually seen a few times here in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, one he says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, We exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now been received reconciliation. Verse 21, As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we can't be told enough. We can't be reminded enough. It can't be said enough. We can't repeat enough that, you know why all this is possible? Do you know why you can be declared not guilty? Do you know why you can be reconciled to God? Do you know why you are now stand before him in perfect righteousness? Do you know now why you have his righteousness imputed to you? Do you know now why you are emancipated from sin? It's only because of one man. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's through him. And Him alone that we can receive these unfathomable blessings of the gospel. He only is the rock in which we can take refuge. The rock of ages. 
thought it would be appropriate to stand together and sing that song once again. We'll sing it the traditional way this time. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And as we sing, two things. One, sing this to Him. And two, think about, again, meditate on what you're singing. They're all the truths that we've been talking about. And rejoice, exult in those truths. Exult in God through Jesus Christ our Lord as we sing. Lord Jesus, you are our only protection, our only refuge, our only cleft in the storm. Lord, without you, we would fall to our doom and forever eternal destruction. But Lord Jesus, you came. You came out of love for the Father and love for us and made a way that we could not only be forgiven, but, but Lord, be reconciled, have peace with God, be given fellowship with you, to be emancipated from our sin, and to be given your righteousness. Oh, Lord, we could not satisfy your law's demands. You satisfied them for us. Lord, stir our hearts with these wonderful truths, not only to encourage us and to live for you, but, but Father, to, to stir in us, to move us, to proclaim these wonderful truths to those around us. For someone, Lord, you sent into our lives to tell them to us. We're so grateful. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you'd like to talk with somebody, if... Lord's at work in your heart. If you have a struggle or need, we'll have some folks up front you can speak with. Let me finish our time together by reading the words that Paul used to end his letter to the Romans. When he says this, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Amen.